welcome to On the Cusp, the podcast that analyzes the new forms of aggression facing liberal democracies and hears from the innovative people at the forefront of countering that aggression. I'm your host, Elizabeth Braw, and I work on these issues as a fellow at the American Enterprise Institute, and I'm also writing a book about it. As we record this podcast, news has just emerged that the United States has been subjected to an enormous and phenomenally sophisticated cyber attack. A Russian hacker group known as APT29, which is thought to be linked to Russia's foreign intelligence service, the SVR, has reportedly managed to hack the State Department, the Department of Treasury, the Department of Homeland Security, the Department of Commerce, sundry government agencies, and in all certainty, many other entities, as well as U.S. companies. And meanwhile, on the other side of the globe, Australia's winemakers are suffering terribly as a result of nothing they have done or nothing their customers have done, but rather as a result of extremely punitive Chinese tariffs on Australian wine, up to 212%, which of course means that Australian wine is no longer saleable in China. And Australian winemakers have lost that market. And why has that happened? It has happened because China was retaliating, wanted to retaliate against Australia's government for asking for an inquiry into the origins of COVID-19. There we have another way in which our rivals are attacking our societies, punishing our societies in ways that are hard to predict and indeed hard to completely defend ourselves against. And all of this is a reminder that national security threats come in many forms and that our adversaries are extremely skilled and ambidextrous and that they strike targets across our society not just the government, and especially not just the armed forces. Now, there's nobody better with whom to discuss this complex situation than Guy Walsh, who is the founding director of the National Security Collaboration Center at the University of Texas in San Antonio. Now, the NSCC, which was launched in 2019, is a core initiative in the university's mission to advance research and education in cybersecurity, and it's especially relevant because San Antonio is, as we all know, an emerging cybersecurity hub. Guy is a former U.S. Air Force officer, fighter pilot. He commanded the Air Force's 175th Wing, which was part of the Maryland National Guard. And while overseeing the Maryland Group's warfighting and emergency readiness from 2002 to 2009, he led the Maryland Air National Guard in its response to support Hurricane Katrina operations. He has also been, among many other things, the inaugural commander of the 451st Air Expeditionary Wing in Kandahar. He was the senior Air Force commander delivering air parts for US and NATO combat operations in Afghanistan. And I will end my introduction there because Guy really has a very long resume that ends, or rather that made its final stop in government service when Guy played a key role in the US Cyber Command, which led to the Cyber Command's Garden Reserve Directorate being launched. And so, Guy, where do we start on where we are now with regards to cyber aggression and much else? From my perspective, this spectacular feat by APT29, the Russian group, suggests that even though the US government has spectacularly good cyber defense and does cyber deterrence, for example, through its defending forward policy, US deterrence against cyber aggression isn't working. Do you agree? Good morning, Elizabeth. So let me first thank you for inviting me this morning. The question of U.S. deterrence, or I'm going to say NATO and Western deterrence against Russian aggression, I've had the opportunity to at least 
look at from not not only a operational perspective in the military, but also an academic. And I'm going to go back, to be honest, 40 years because I started this in the UK. In fact, my first flying assignments were there back in 1980s, flying out of RAF Alconbury. And at that time, I was also working on my master's program, traveling to Cambridge University and working through a program with the University of Southern California, studying about international relations, deterrence, and military powers and those type of things. So, so it's interesting that, albeit that what we're doing today in 2020, 40 years later, in the cyber arena now, as opposed to some of the more traditional forces that we used in the militaries back in my time in the UK, that we still face some of those same challenges, right? Albeit in, in a digital format right now. So what I would say is one of the things we learned about in the flying world was called the OODA loop. So with observe, orient, decide, and act. And we find ourselves in that same loop with adversaries. And again, we're talking today nation state actors. And so the ones that you've been mentioning and a few others that are out there, but being able to what we call maintain some level of superiority. Again, superiority is not continuous all the time. It is revolving, right? And so in terms of being able to maintain an advantage at the time and place of our choosing, and clearly in this instance that we're talking about that is still evolving and developing, at least the, from a news perspective, we did not have the advantage. And our defenses that we had set up were breached by a very sophisticated actor and team here again, most likely looking from an attribution perspective as APT29 right now. And what's interesting is that the U.S. is obviously aware of these threats, and as are other countries. And the U.S. in particular has been trying to address it by indicting individuals involved in attacks or has indicted, for example, the Russian intelligence officers that were involved in the NotPetya attacks on Ukraine that then spread all over the world and, and struck a number of multinationals as well. And those officers were also indicted over attacks on Emmanuel Macron's presidential campaign and attacks on Ukraine, all cyber attacks. But the deterrence clearly isn't strong enough. And I'm reminded almost every single day of what Dr. Strangelove said in the film. He said deterrence has to create in the mind of the adversary or the enemy, he said, actually, the fear to attack. And clearly, the other side isn't afraid to attack. Yeah. So... At a national level and organizational level, that's true. But I, I don't want to underestimate the importance of holding individuals accountable and the impact that that can have over a long term, right? So in the short term, that won't have immediate effect. But I do think that we've seen some of the impact of holding people accountable. And that's something that is only made possible by both international cooperation, as well as what I will say, leveraging the full authorities that we have within the U.S. and across our federal government on that piece there. So in that case, some of the things that you talk about there, working with the State Department, working with the Department of Justice and our FBI, who have those authorities specifically for doing investigation, attribution, disruption, and some of those things, prosecuting what I will say is some of the cyber crime activities that happen there. And so they really have being able to bring that team in and that has not always been the case. The idea of the Department of Defense in the U.S. working closely with the Department of Homeland Security, working with DOJ, the Department of Justice, is relatively new from the perspective that I will say in 2011 or 2010, as we formed U.S. Cyber Command, the idea of exercising and working together, some of the first ones we did there 
I believe it was actually in 2013, where we worked hand in hand. In fact, physically, we hosted, it was, it was the FBI that hosted the 2013 Cyber Guard exercise, not DOD, even though the predominance of the participants may have been out of DOD. It was working across the board to be able to do that. And the Department of Justice, working with the State Department and International, was holding individuals accountable. And that becomes a player when you're, when you're starting to look at the impact, when you stop someone from doing some of the travels, and I'll use the term escaping, but being able to freely move about, whether it be in Europe or the US or many of our NATO countries. And I think it does have an impact there. So it's an important piece by itself. It won't be successful. We have to find other ways of being able to work on creating both a balance between deterrence and defense. I completely agree. And in fact, I think that the US is being very innovative in in using criminal justice as a tool of national defense. And and Professor Gary Brown at the National Defense University and I teamed up to write about it. And we called it personalized deterrence because it really deters these individual people from engaging, from conducting these attacks. And if you don't have enough skilled practitioners left or willing to do it, then obviously your aggression will come to an end. Just to explain to listeners what what the US government does is essentially indicting individuals involved, which means that by extension, they won't be able to get visas to visit the US, they won't be able to live in the US. And I think there is even potential to, for example, prevent them from owning property and so forth. So it really is punishing the individual as opposed to the country, which is really where in, in deterrence we depart from the way things used to work during the Cold War and indeed afterwards, where countries were punished for aggressive actions or planned aggressive actions. One thing I want to discuss with you, Guy, is how this all affects private companies, because as as we know, cyber aggression is changing. It's no longer the, the watering can principle where some aggressor essentially shoots out the equivalent of, of thousands of bullets and hopes that somebody will be hit, it's, it's a much more targeted form of aggression, which means that when a company is hit, it's more likely hit with a very sophisticated weapon. Where does this leave companies? Yeah, well, we're, I think we're seeing that. The other one that's probably in the news today and will continue to be in the news is a lot of these private companies that have been involved in making the vaccine for COVID right now. So as we look at some of the threats against those by, in this case, again, nation state actors looking to take advantage of a lot of the work that's been done, not only here in the US, but internationally on building a vaccine capable of getting us through this COVID and the pandemic right now is just another example of where industries and companies, even I will say the small mom and pop shops are seeing the threats that they're facing right now. And so part of that is is exactly the idea in terms of working together across public, private, and the industries down to the small companies and sharing that information. So a lot really comes down to our ability to share information. And that, I think, is still one of the challenges where we as a nation, we as a country, we as a federal government, and others have not succeeded to the level that we need to for the timeliness on how quickly we're able to share information. Part of that, I would argue that going to machine to machine and what we're doing in the areas of artificial intelligence and machine learning is going to move that forward tremendously to be able to to move that information. Right now, a lot of it has shared much more slowly. I'm going to use the term analog as opposed to digital or specifically machine to machine. So it has not been fast enough. 
We saw that in the U.S. with the attacks against our our cities, right? Whether it was in Baltimore, 23 municipalities, I think it was throughout Texas that were attacked. And we realized this was the same threat, the same threat vector, and the same type of attack that had we been able to share the information quicker, we would have succeeded in that. So, And we're seeing that same thing across the companies that are out there. That is an area where technology will help us to be able to do that. But equally important is the policy for how quickly we're able to share information. Part of that, of course, is involving all parts of society, not just all parts of the government, but industry as well. And I wanted to ask you about, first of all, the Cyber Command's Guard and Reserve Directorate, which you were involved in in launching, and then Cyber Guard, which is a fantastic cyber exercise with a whole of society approach, where it's, again, not just the government, but the private sector as well that participates. Can you tell me what the results have been since you were involved in creating these two initiatives and maybe what other countries can learn from those two? Yeah, absolutely. So we began that program as we stood up U.S. Cyber Command back in the 2010-2011 timeframe. We began, first of all, was called the Cyber Flag Exercise. And very simply, it was modeled after a program that the Air Force had developed back in the 1970s during Vietnam. And very simply, the program was developed because we were losing aircraft in Vietnam due to not understanding the threats in the enemy. And so a gentleman by the name of Moody Suter had developed a program for essentially for pilots to fly their first 10 combat missions in a exercise environment that was established up at Nellis Air Force Base in Nevada. And we found that being able to get into an exercise series where we had an adversary, in this case called the Red Forces, or the op for the opposing force that specifically emulated a threat actor that we did. And so we said that model will work just as well as it did in airplanes for our cyber operators in terms of building a team and being able to get a team to work together just as we do in the air, right? In terms of being able to work four airplanes, eight airplanes, 12 airplanes and packages. And so we developed this program called Cyber Flag, which was really a military type exercise. And then we realized hey, most of these attacks are really going against critical infrastructure, our industries. And we we saw them as most vulnerable for that. And so in around the 2012 type timeframe, we developed what was called the Cyber Guard. And that when we talk about Guard, it was really about the homeland, guarding the homeland. So it was much more about bringing in not only our other federal partners, but in this case, industry partners. In 2015, we built our largest at that time group of industry partners who were in that. In fact, in that same year, we had a industry day where we got out of, in fact, the classified realm, and we invited over 220 industry and state government partners to come and watch how these exercises were put together and watch how members from critical infrastructure, whether it be in the finance area, the energy sector, the transportation sector, and watch how we worked together on that. And that was a tremendous success. Admittedly, as we moved the cyber guard forward, we were challenged with priorities, right? Admiral Rogers at that time with the commander was under tremendous pressures to be able to bring our cyber mission force. So it was about 133 teams up to fully operational capabilities. And so we sort of drew down. We didn't stop working with either international partners or industry, but we had to refocus that exercise. The good news is what happened as the follow-up for the cyber guard exercise was we started to do it now regionally. So it wasn't completely dependent on 
an exercise hosted by U.S. Cyber Command. Rather, parts of the U.S. and the regions of the U.S. started to do these regionally where they got with their industry partners and got with the metropolitan areas. And we did that up in the Northeast. We did that in the Midwest exercises. In addition to what we did in the CyberGuard exercise and U.S. Cyber Command continues to do, we've developed an exercise and really research to look at how we integrate industry partners and metropolitan areas to what was historically a military exercise. And that is called the Jack Voltaic program run by Army Cyber Institute up at West Point. We began that program back in 2015 with the city of New York and their city's cyber command working with industry partners. And in 2017, we again did that in Houston. And this past year in 20, we did it with the city of Savannah. And that has continued on many of the lessons learned and how to improve the communications, information sharing, and the preparedness and resilience of our industry, of our metropolitan areas across the board. So important collaboration, not just across the government, but with industry. And as you said, at the local level as well with cities and other entities, because our defense is only as strong as the weakest link. It's an overused phrase, but it really is true when it comes to cyber and other new national security threats. There is, in fact, a lot we can learn in other areas from what the Air Force originally and, and then the Cyber Command did in working with industry in these exercises that you described. And, and let's hope that becomes a standard, not just in, in the US, in various parts of the US, but in other countries as well. So that, yes, we, we can't prevent every single cyber attack, but we can develop a level of familiarity with the procedures so that if something were to happen, at least we can limit the harm done by that cyber attack. So again, thank you, Guy Walsh, very much for joining us on, on the CASP. And let's hope that other countries pick up some of these ideas that the US has been developing over the years. And indeed, other countries have ideas that other allies can learn from as well. And that's the great thing about being an alliance, whether it's NATO, Five Eyes, the European Union. We're all friends, despite our disputes, and can benefit from one another's knowledge. Thank you, Guy Walsh, and thank you all for listening. Tweet me at Elizabeth Bro, and please feel free to subscribe and comment on Apple and Spotify as well. Many thanks as ever to our producers, Olivia Leslie and Anya Terrell, and we'll be back very soon with another episode and another guest who's doing pioneering work. See you on the CASP.